Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Brown Girls Read podcast. This is your host Aman Tiwana and this is Kathy Thakur and both of us love reading books. On this podcast we bring our favorite books to you and discuss the parts that were most meaningful to us and how we found them interesting or relatable as brown girls. Today we have Nadia Hashimi with us. Nadia is an Afghan American author who has written several books like The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, The House Without Windows and Sparks Like Stars. which we also discussed in our latest episode if you haven't listened to our discussion of the book go and listen to the previous episode where we discussed sparks like stars and now let's bring nadia on hi nadia welcome to brown girls read hi thanks so much for having me thank you for being here nadia and taking the time to you know come and talk to us about your book sparks like stars i have read a bunch of your books before i was really excited to read sparks like stars but we didn't know that when we would be reading this book all these things would be happening in the world like most of us know things have drastically changed in afghanistan since taliban has taken over control so first of all we wanted to just check in with you like how's everything going with you how are you doing with this and how are you coping with it It's truly been a uh, a really heartbreaking time. It's been a very busy time um and just stressful in a lot of ways to be very honest. We have some relatives who are still in Kabul. My husband has relatives still in Kabul. There are people who are very very worried about what's going to happen. Some of them because of the work that they were doing before all of this happened and um and some people that we know have already been threatened. by the Taliban. So, you know, we're very concerned for them. We were concerned during the evacuation process because there were people who were trying to flee and the the airport had become such a dangerous place. And it was very hard to give anybody advice on what to do or what the best choices were. So, it was just very very difficult not just for us but for so many families who were having the same kinds of conversations receiving the same kinds of desperate messages uh, and feeling the same kind of helplessness about what we could do at the same time i was getting a lot of information to me from people who were in these networks of women activists of women in leadership of women who really needed to be evacuated from the country because of uh because of the targets on their backs as well so We have really been trying there's also been a lot of energy that we've put into creating a a safe warm welcome for the people who are arriving here in the United States so you know energies are just and attention has been pulled in um several different directions along with you know we all also have our own lives and our own families and responsibilities and so I think everyone is just feeling pulled in many different directions wanting to do something in this moment and uh and trying to make the best out of all these different uh tugging forces. Yeah, it's hard to imagine doing all of this and it also feels like no matter how much you do it's just not enough, right? It really isn't enough because you look at, you know, it's like picking up one pebble and then realizing there's still a mountain in front of you uh, that needs to be moved. But you know, I think that while I was talking with some friends and the goal is really to see if those of us who are who are in this space right now can just focus on these small triumphs and and focus on what we have been able to do and the the, the movements that we have been able to create because otherwise it can be very overwhelming and and really disheartening and demoralizing. Since we're also going to talk about the book a little bit and sparks like stars as well. You touched upon this this feeling of how immigrants feel when something is happening in their uh, original country and it's a very complicated complex feeling because 
you are living here in the US, but there is something that's happening to your people in a different country, in your country, actually. So I'm pretty sure there are people like that, like you, and there are other people who are feeling the same thing. What is one message that you would like to send to them in these times? I think the solidarity has been the most uplifting, the most empowering, and the most the most nurturing, right? Because in order to be able to do this and to persist in this space and in this kind of work, it really takes a lot of replenishing. And one of the ways that I have found um, to keep myself going and to keep my energies up is by being around people who are doing the same, who are of the same heart. And that's not necessarily people, you know, from my own community. I mean, for the most part, it is. But there are also a lot of allies that we have. There are a lot of friends that we have, people who are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder, as they say, and work towards the same goals. And to understand that the experience of, of refugees at this particular moment, you know, may feel unique, but it really isn't. And so, you know, drawing some connections, for example, between the Afghan refugee community and the Vietnamese refugee community, or what has happened in different periods of the past. And I think that's, that's the kind of thing that, um, that we should be focused on, and we should help one another turn our attentions to the positives that are coming out, because otherwise, otherwise, it gets very dark. That's very true. Do you have some suggestions of how people like us who are immigrants and who want to help can help uh, refugees? Are there some organizations that we can donate something to or or anything of that sort? Sure, they are. And that's, the, you know, the outpouring of support, like I said, from the from the broader community has been truly, truly amazing. There have been donation drives that have set up in different areas, particularly around the areas where these refugees are landing. So what's been happening is that the refugees uh, where the newly arrives are coming through mostly through Dallas Airport and then also um, into Philadelphia now. And then they're placed in different military bases around the country. And, and at those bases is where they initially have needed some supplies. From there, they're going to go into resettlement and they will find themselves in different communities. And so resettlement agencies are really going to be the ones that are looking for donations for people to help newly arrived Afghans to get to their appointments um, because they won't necessarily have cars. They won't have driver's licenses. And so sometimes it's just logistical help, learning English. So teaching English to newly arrived, teaching them to drive, um, helping them get to uh, not just doctor's appointments, but also helping folks get their children registered for school. Like those are types of things that people can volunteer through resettlement agencies or through other community organizations to help folks who are landing within their neighborhoods. Thanks. That is so helpful. And yeah, there are, you know, some things that we don't even understand would be needed. And you touched on those things. So thank you for that. And we're definitely going to look for some organizations that we can help yes. with. And beyond that, honestly, I think that, you know, we will see people in our communities, right? We'll see them on the street. We'll see them in the grocery store. And sometimes it just means a lot to get a smile. A lot of us have our masks on, but you can still smile through your eyes, right? Your eyes still smile with you. And sometimes that can make a world of difference. So I think there are large and small ways that people can be welcoming. That's a beautiful message. Thank you so much, Nadia. Nadia, you've written a lot of books that are rooted in Afghanistan or the stories of people, how they're living their lives there. And there are a lot more books about Afghanistan, and most of them are written against this backdrop of war. With some books, I've noticed that they end up stereotyping people as either victims or terrorists. 
or attach certain identities to religion, especially when these books end up being consumed by the Western world. I remember reading The Kite Runner as a teenager, and I loved the book. The book is really famous. There's a movie made on it. When you kind of go back and look at things, it's like, in some ways, it associated things like pedophilia to Afghan men, also abusive personality to them. I wonder how writers can be more responsible about creating these images. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a twofold responsibility. I think some of the responsibility is on the writer. And then I think some of the responsibility is also on the reader, right? I mean, if I read a book that is about an American woman, I do not believe that that is meant to tell me the story of every American woman, right? It's so... And so on the consumption side of this, we also have a responsibility to acknowledge that every story is one single story and it is not meant to represent an entire nation's narrative, right? Or an entire population's narrative. You know, then there's also the responsibility of the writer. And for sure, I think that, you know, we as writers, I mean, I can't really speak for writers in general, but I know that I can speak for myself in acknowledging that there are stereotypes and hoping to be able to show people the nuance that is more interesting to me anyway, right? And so if I try to write about a character who is, um, you know, the the quote-unquote like villain of the story or the bad guy, I always find it much more interesting to incorporate a bit of humanity into those people as well. The backstory, you know, what what is leading them to make these choices that we so want to, you know, disagree with, that we see as evil or negative or, you know, wherever they may fall on the spectrum. Because I think that that's where we really start to understand why people are the way they are. And that's what helps us to make connections. Because I cannot relate to a superhero in the same way that I cannot relate to, you know, the Joker or any of these like super villains because they're beyond the scope of of reality, of humanity. But in truth, people fall somewhere closer to us, whether we see them as the protagonist or the antagonist of the story. And there's so much more nuance in our interactions. And so that's the space that I find more interesting and very worthy. But, you know, like I said, I cannot speak for for all writers. And I do, I will insist that it is a two-way responsibility that we as readers as well to think about our lens as we are consuming stories. I definitely agree with that. Whether it's books or movies, the way we consume them play a role. I have often felt that movies do that a lot. They'll take a certain kind of a character. And we are Indians, right? Indians in Western world often are played as like taxi drivers, if at all they are in the movie, right? So it sets a certain stereotype, even though it can be true that a lot of Indians came here, lack of jobs, they had to take up that profession, but still like perpetuating it further and further is where I think there's like the responsibility of the creator of movies as well. Right, right. I mean, I think we can lean into things that are definitely truths in our community and in our narratives without pushing it to the extent that it becomes a caricature, right, of like a a very exaggerated persona. And I can tell you that I've had people write to me about books that I have written that they've read. And the same book with the same words and the same writings, I've had one person write to me uh, about The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. And they said, um, wow, this book really shows how horrible Islam is for women. 
And then I've had another person write to me and said, I read the Pearl of Broken Shell and you really portrayed um, the role of our religion so beautifully in uplifting us in, in times. And so, you know, it just depends on how you're looking at things. The same, the same story can be consumed in very different ways. Yeah, that's actually definitely true. And on the same lines, I think Damar also touched upon it a little bit in her question. In times like these, people start defining like the extremists by their religion, right? So for example, Taliban has a particular religion. And then what usually happens is that the religion starts getting blamed for what people or extremists are doing. And usually because people are unaware and ignorant about other religions. And I keep wondering about that, you know, why does that happen? So what are your thoughts on that? No, oh, I think it's... it's um it's it's sort of the lazy route to take, right? It's um, if you allow headlines to inform you, then you're not going to be very well informed. And if you allow sound bites or you know one tweet to inform you, you're not going to be very well informed because there is no way to boil everything down into that much space. And so it really does take much more digging. We've got to open ourselves to accept that there is a whole body of experiences and a whole body of knowledge and information that's out there. And so if you just take a look at the Taliban and say, that's it, that's my whole education, what it means to be a Muslim, then you've really shortchanged yourself and, and you have, you know, failed to understand that how many people in this world are living that faith in a very, very different way. Even within Afghanistan, right? We're not talking about, you know, having to travel to another country that's miles and miles away. And the same thing with any other group of people. It doesn't even have to be an ideology that we're looking at. We take a look at, you know, how do we understand different cultures as well? If you see something that's happening in one culture or in one household, that does not mean that it extrapolates. And so I think we really have to be able to not be so short-sighted and not so easily quenched in our in our looking for information that that one line that you get is not it you've got to keep reading you've got to keep digging and and just be very skeptical i think everything that we read we have to take with a grain of salt because what we're handed is really it's it's just these distillations that don't really do justice to what we're actually trying to get a taste of coming back to the book I really loved how Sitara's story touches on a multitude of things. One is the very obvious one, a child who saw war firsthand and how it affects, whether it's through depression, PTSD. One nuance that you put in the book, which was that she checks evacuation maps in the hotels. And then, I don't know if it's a coincidence, I saw a photo on your Instagram where you had posted something like that. And I was like, okay, is this a personal touch or... What is it? I'm very curious about that. Okay, so it's funny you're saying that now because I did post that on Instagram and I actually had forgotten that I'd written that in the book. I mean, I wrote the book a while ago now. It only came out this year, but the time that I actually wrote it was was well before that. And sometimes I forget what I've written. <laughs> so I was not making that connection when I thought about it. And the truth is that when I was looking at that, I was standing in front of an elevator, right? I'd gone to an appointment and I'm standing in front of the elevator and I'm looking at this evacuation map. And what I've been doing for the past two weeks is trying to evacuate people. And so I'm looking at this map and it looks so 
quick little red line, go from here to here, walk over here, and you're you're out, right? And it just looked so dismissive to me in in a time where I'm like thinking about people who are at an airport who can't get past one of the gates who are being turned away at Taliban checkpoints, who are being turned away by the U.S. They're being told that ISIS is in the area and there's threats of a bombing. And yet they know that if they don't get through this airport and take these risks and walk through this canal of sewage, then they may not ever get out. And this is our evacuation plan. So, um, but it's it's interesting that history seems to go in very small circles in Afghanistan. And what's happened then is happening now. When I was growing up, I was helping my parents fill out paperwork and immigration forms for family members. And literally in the last week, at one point, I was so overwhelmed that I had my 10-year-old daughter helping me to transcribe information from one spreadsheet onto another. And so I'm thinking, you know, here she is doing what I was doing when I was a little girl you know, for how many generations are we going to do this? Are, are, are we always going to be doing this? Is our next generation then going to have to learn all this terminology and, and figure out how to, you know, write the right names and the right information, the right boxes, and then pray that somebody will come out to safety. It's, it's, it's been really heartbreaking to see how things come full circle from my past through the story and then into what's happening right now. We can't even imagine, Nadia, how it must be for you. But even reading the book, it felt like, okay, you wrote about a piece of history. And now what's happening? There were like so many parallels between those two things that the book was really hard to read because of that. Yeah, I think maybe that's why I have um, sort of pushed some of the thinking away around that story. And this moment is really, it's not about me. It's not about that story. It is about the people who are living this moment right now. And will then be carrying the trauma that somebody like Satara had to carry for the rest of her life. And so we have now another generation of real people, not fictional characters, but very real people, real children, real moms, real dads who are going to carry this trauma forward with them. And a country that is now having a, a brutal blow inflicted upon it with, um, you know, with a regime that I don't know how long it will last, um, but we do know that will be very, very damaging to the people who still have to live there. Reading about, you know, the effect that war has on children was also very, very hard in this book. We keep seeing these stories of, you know, children in Syria getting affected because of war. And it is just disheartening to see that. So I wanted to ask, like, what inspired the character of Satara? Like, did you always wanted to write about a girl a little girl who was going through war and hardships and how she comes out of it was that the reason no so Sitara came from me wanting to talk about this time in history wanting to talk about Afghanistan before the war this Afghanistan that I inherited from my parents through the photographs that we had on our walls through the stories that they would tell me of this peaceful beautiful place where they had Peace Corps volunteers and just people from other countries and it had a very different feeling um and was very welcoming to foreigners as well. So I wanted to talk about that period of history. And that took me to, you know, what then happened that changed this? What was the tipping point? And it really, you know, as I dug in, it was really this 1978 military coup that turned inward on the country. 
when I was reading the news article about the, you know, the bodies from that night from the assassination, they'd been buried um, in an unmarked grave. And so when I was reading this news article about the discovery of those bodies decades later, there was a, a description of the bodies that were found and how it included not just the president of Afghanistan at that time, but his wife and several family members, including four of his grandchildren. And the youngest was just a toddler. And that stuck in my head. I think maybe as a mom, as a pediatrician, I got stuck on the children who were there, who were there not just witnessing, but who were also victims, casualties of this military coup, but who were watching a very um, momentous event in Afghanistan's history. And so I just wanted to explore it through the eyes of a child, um, a child who would survive and then carry this with them. And understand that, you know, their fate was sort of tied to the fate of the country as well. That, you know, as individuals, they carry this trauma. As a nation, they carry this trauma. And that's why I, I, I had to introduce Sitara because that's where the impact is most felt. It's on the children, right? Because they go on. They're the ones who are building the next generation. They're the ones who are telling the rest of the story. Yeah, it was also really hard. That part when she meets the president's grandson. He's alive and how the rest of the family isn't. And the fact that that part was taken from reality really hits you hard. Yeah, it's it's uh, sometimes really hard to think what these folks went through, what these people went through, what they experienced in their lives, especially sitting from obviously a place of, of comfort, of privilege, and just thinking about what it is like to have that set of memories, to have those visions in your head and not be able to erase them, not not be able to undo those moments, it's its a lot. Yeah, definitely. And Nadia, one of the questions that I have also is, I know the story is about Sitara trying to make peace, or I don't know, like, is it about making peace? Or is, is it's mostly about, you know, coming to terms with what happened in her past, and then living her life, or like letting go of things, I guess, you know, she lets go of whatever happened to her in the past. And now she's trying to survive and live her life in a way that she wants to. But I kept thinking, even after the book ended, what did Sitara do after? Did she end up going back to Afghanistan and help kids there? Because I know there is this point in the book where she goes to Afghanistan and she saw that uh, there was this lady who was helping. She was a gynec and she was helping a lot of moms in that in that scenario. And I, I always kept thinking, maybe Sitara is going to do that in the end. You know, maybe she's going to go back and help women like that. So did you, like, I don't know if there is a ending after that. You know, I like to leave my, I like to leave my endings with a little bit of an open feeling because I think that that's where, you know, I'd like to tell you part of the story. And then for the readers, I like the readers to try to take it from there and, and be able to imagine the next steps or what happens next on their own. Because, you know, we've gone through a journey together for so long by that point that at that, then by then it's not just my story, it's yours. And I think that the, the rest of that ending can be imagined by, by anyone in many different ways. And at that point, I stop, I stop telling you what Sitara has done. And then we start to dream about what she might do next, right? I think that, you know, the possibilities of what Sitara would do have really changed in my mind in light of what's happened now in Afghanistan, right? Because um, before I would say, sure, maybe she went back and found ways to treat children over there or take care of people or, or train other doctors. I mean, there's a world of things that she could do or be involved with a nonprofit. Uh, uh, some of the stuff that I actually see my fellow Afghan Americans doing 
and doing in really powerful ways. But in this moment now, it is really hard to say that she would have any capacity to help, especially as people are desperate to flee the country. And as there's, you know, so many questions about people who would even want to be there, um, and what kind of safety they would have, and what kind of access to healthcare people are going to have. So in in this moment, in Afghanistan, it's really hard to say that Sitara would be able to do, um, would do the kinds of things that we would want her to do when we reach that final page of the story. That totally makes sense. I think when I read the book, it was way before this happened. So, of course, my imagination of what Shikara would do was completely different of what she would do now. It has drastically changed the situation. And that, I think that's exactly the feeling that so many Afghan Americans are having and that so many Afghans are having, right? The world of possibilities for what can happen in the future, what they can do in the future, has completely changed. And the possibility has gone from, like, you know, limitless to maybe two options. Girls now in Kabul are only going to school until sixth grade. That's the latest, right? So what do you do with a sixth grade education? There's not going to be very much, right? And I think that's really, that's really what's really hard is the, that strangulation of aspirations, of ambitions, of dreams and hopes. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's really hard to be clobbered like that in every possible way that you're not allowed to grow as a person. Right, right. I know there are a lot of readers like us out there who probably don't know the entire history or don't know how things started. So do you have any book recommendations for readers like that? Yes. And um, and I have, I've put together some lists and they, they should be out soon. I'll be circulating that on um, online as well. I wrote, just wrote up a, an, a list for electric literature. I um, also have a list of books that I put out on electric literature as well on their website for um, books that are written by Afghan women. And some of them are memoirs. Some of them are, are written. One is written by a journalist, for example, and there's some biographies in there that really give a, a, a take on what's been happening in the country. I think that it's also, you know, books like Ghost Wars or The Wrong Enemy. Um, these are some of the books that take a little bit of a deeper dive into the Afghanistan situation. Those are good reads. Then there are some older texts like the Dupree couple wrote the book Afghanistan, which is a history of the uh, sociological and uh, cultural and, and political history of the country as well. Probably the best from an Afghan writer is Tamim Ansari, and he has written across genres. So he has written some excellent nonfiction, including Destiny Disrupted and The Great Game. And, uh, and then he's also written memoir and fiction too. Thanks, Nadia. We will also make a list of these and put it out. And I guess, Nadia, before we end the conversation, do you have a message for our listeners today? You know, there are um, so many books out there, so I'm always very, very grateful when anyone chooses to sit down, make space on their shelves or on their nightstand or uh, on their Kindle for, for one of these stories, and especially now at this time. So thank you for spending your hours and taking a little bit more of a nuanced look at Afghanistan. My hope is that people will understand that it may look very bleak now, but the story is not over. And we really do need people to keep paying attention to what's happening, because that's, I think, what people in Afghanistan who are looking to turn the lights out on uh, on the girls and on the women there. They're really banking on the world having a very short attention span and a narrow bandwidth. 
but we do need to keep paying attention. It can be exhausting, but, you know, hopefully we can keep our eyes on what's going on and keep supporting and pushing in the right directions. Thank you for that message, Nadia. It's a really, really important message. I think, and it's so relevant in today's world, like we have so much information available to us now that we end up, you know, sometimes filtering the most important ones out just because there has been a lot of time that has went by and especially because we are not directly being affected by it. Yeah. And there's so many, I mean, if you look at the news, there are fires in every corner of the world, right? Our attentions are pulled in many, many different directions and it can be exhausting. So I I hope that we can all nurture each other and replenish each other's energies too, so that we don't feel so alone in the work that we're doing. And on that note, I think we can end this conversation because that's just a beautiful message, Nadia. And yes, we all need to just turn towards each other in compassion. Thank you so much for making this space. We are so grateful to Nadia for taking the time to speak with us and for raising awareness about this ongoing struggle in Afghanistan. She's an inspiration for all the work that she has been doing for Afghan refugees in this time of need. And we need more trailblazers like her. Definitely. For our next episode, we are reading Unmarriageable by Sonia Kamal. It's a charming retelling of Pride and Prejudice that takes place in Pakistan in the early 2000s. We hope you'll be reading with us. And until then, keep listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brown Girls Read Podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating and a comment. You can support us at anchor.fm slash browngirlsread slash support. Your support will allow us to continue this podcast and bring more episodes to you. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Brown Girls Read Pod and Brown Girls Read One on Twitter. If you have book recommendations for us, you can leave us a comment or message on our social media. And you can also subscribe to us on YouTube for more content.